Well, good morning. It's great uh, to be here uh, with you in Belerno this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up. We're going to be looking at uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 this morning. Uh, so I'm just going to be going through this one small verse uh, bit by bit this morning. Uh, but before we start, shall we, shall we uh, just take a moment to quiet, just invite the Holy Spirit to be with us here now. Holy Spirit, come, fill our hearts, fill our minds. Teach us what you have to teach us. Remind us what you have to remind us. And show us love, that we may know more of who you are and all you've done for us. Amen. So before we get going, uh, I'm going to get uh, you all to do something for me. Before I ask you to do it, I have to confess, uh, when I'm asked to do something like this, uh, if I don't know anyone that's around me, I'll just turn to Ruth, I'll make funny faces and pretend I'm meeting her for the first time. But I don't want any of us to do that here today, even do as I uh, say, not as I do. But what I want you to do, you don't need to say anything, uh, but would you turn to your neighbours, not someone you came with, and just acknowledge them. Just not a term where you feel you focus on them too long, you stare creepily or make someone feel uncomfortable. Just turn and acknowledge someone that you didn't come with. So notice who it is and then turn back to the front. Wow, you've just noticed someone made in the image of God. In the image of God. Whoever it was, you acknowledge someone made in the image of God. But I wonder what you were thinking when you acknowledged them. And we'll put the first slide up now. Hopefully they work. Uh, or the second slide, even. Yeah. Maybe you were thinking, they're such a hero. A few years back, uh, someone told me that I looked a little bit like Jack-Jack from The Incredibles. Not the most flattering likeness, I have to say, but I'll take it. He's a superhero after all, and there are worse things to be likened to. So maybe you turned to someone and thought, they're a bit of a hero. They're such a good person. They're so worshipful. Don't they serve on like 10 worship teams and still somehow they're sitting here next to me now? Don't they direct that amazing charity? They're clearly so faithful. Aren't they amazing? They can actually look around and acknowledge people without feeling sheepish or on the spot. They lead worship. They must be a great Christian. They won't even have broken even one of the Ten Commandments. They're so much better person than me. They have it all together. They're a much better Christian. Or maybe when you turn to the people next to you, you were thinking this. If we go to the next slide. Maybe you were thinking it's just in their blood. Also, just the other day, I uh, was looking over Ruth's shoulder, and I saw, oh, I thought she was looking at a picture of me on her phone. I asked, oh, where was that photo taken? It turned out she was actually reading the news, and it was a photo of Prince William. <laughs> Rather embarrassing. It's the hairline, I think. But maybe when you turned to someone else, you thought, they must be such good Christian. Their parents were such good Christians. They have amazingly well-behaved children. They just look the part. They look like royalty. It must be in their blood. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they were direct descendants of Moses, who got all the commandments and laws from God. They must be such good people. Oh, I wish I could be like them. Have their upbringing. 
have their background in faith. They've gone to church all their life. They're just so much better person than me. They have all together. They're a much better Christian than me. It's in their blood. Or maybe you are, if we go to the next slide now, or maybe you think, thank goodness I'm not like them. Sometimes I don't look like anyone in particular, I just look like me, a prematurely balding guy who has the ability to pull some rather spectacular faces. How on earth I'm a minister with the ability to unintentionally pull a photo like this, although this was actually intentional, I have to say, I'll never know. So maybe you turn to the person next to you and thought, gosh, I'm a much better Christian than them. They're the elephant in the room. I mean, look at them. They look so lost. Have they ever been to church before? They didn't raise their hands during the worship. They had to open up Bible Gateway on their internet browser to find the passage. Look at my Bible. It's so used, it's got notes overflowing from it, and its spine's falling apart. I just opened my Bible to the exact right page. I must be a better person than them. I know my Bible. I can recite all ten Ten Commandments. I pray. I have it all together. Thank you, God, for not making me like them. Thank you for making me a better Christian. I mean, just look at them. Are they really Christian at all? Maybe not. I hope probably most of us didn't think that when we were looking at someone, but we have a tendency sometimes to, to edge in that direction, don't we? And it's not about any of these things. It's not about that. It's not about how heroic someone is, how successful they appear, how much they serve others, even though that's a good thing, what they do, who their parents are, who their children are, whether they have children or not, how long they've gone to church for, how well they're able to fit in, whether they raise their hands in worship or not, whether they have an ESV extra sound version study Bible or whether they have a pristine tract New Testament that looks like it's fresh off the press. Whoever you looked at, whoever you acknowledged, how are they Christians or how could they be Christian? Jesus. Jesus Jesus, Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. All of us, heroic or not, upfront or not, leaders or not, servers or not, new Christians, old Christians, not Christians, royal or not, the only way we are, can be, could ever be Christians. The only way we could ever experience that closeness of God, adoption and his children, as they spoke about, is through Jesus. Paul reminds us in Galatians, now I know this isn't the passage for today, but we're going to start off with Galatians. He reminds us, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. As we look at the people alongside us, and whether or not you did it earlier, as I asked, we do it all, all the time. Or at least, maybe not all the time, but a lot of the time. At least in our past, at least some of the time. I know I do. Often before I even have a chance to catch myself, we notice someone and we make an assessment. How do we compare with them? Are they better than me? Are they worse than me? Am I a better person than them? Or are they better than me? All as though we get to where we are on our own. It's what we do ourselves, who we are ourselves. It's not Jesus we see. We're on a quest to do it for ourselves. I mean, being a Christian... Uh, means doing exactly what the Bible says, doesn't it? Rigidly following lots of rules, being a good person. It's a bit of a DIY handbook, isn't it? 
lots of wisdom and rules to follow as you strive on towards perfection. That's how you're a Christian. That's how you do the right thing, isn't it? Wrong. We're the heroes, villains, bystanders. We're the preachers, worship leaders, worshippers, or in church for the very first time. Whether royalty or servants, whether we've always gone to church or never stepped into church, whether our parents are leading theologians or just another couple of homo sapiens, whether we know our Bible back to front or we hold our Bible back to front. <laughs> None of us can do it on our own. We just can't. Though we'd love to say, I did it myself, we can't. And when we try, we say to God, thanks for your grace. Thanks for sending Jesus to die for me and all that. But I don't think I need it. I'm going to try going it myself. I think I can make a good stab at it, a good stab at being righteous. Now, I'm sure most of us wouldn't uh, think that we live the perfect lives. Don't think we could live the perfect lives. But often that doesn't stop us from trying, or at least from judging others from thinking we're better than others, or others are better than ourselves. But that's a wrong thing to do. We'll never measure up if our identity, our goodness, our value comes from what we do and how well we do it, even in worshipping, praying, or reading the Bible. We will always mess up. We do always mess up. We all know that. But then when we've gone and tried to do it ourselves, tried to do it ourselves when we do mess up, we feel awful. How did I do that so badly? How could anyone love me? I'm a rubbish Christian. How could God love me? So, how can our identity become an identity of righteousness? And this is where we're able to come to recognize the massive importance of today's passage, which is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, where it says, it should come up on the screen now, for our sake, he made him to be sin, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how we become righteous. Not any old righteousness, just like one of multiple different right choices to get somewhere, one, or two, uh, one of three right moves you might, in a, might make in a board game, none really any better than the other. It just depends what our strategy is. This is the ultimate unparalleled righteousness, the righteousness of God. So let's work through this. It has three key parts, this verse. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We need to listen in close. See those words I put just above the three points? It is for our sake, for us. Paul is even including himself in this as he writes, for our sake, for the Corinthians, for all of us, it's for our good, it's for our sake. It's for the good of one of the authors God chose to speak, to, speak through in writing the Bible. And it's no more or less for our good. So listen in, this is for us. For our sake, for our good, he made him to be sin. Jesus was made to be sin sin. Jesus became sin. 
Now, sin is becoming less and less understood in the world, I think. If you were to go up to someone in the street uh, and say they were guilty of sin, I don't think that would, well, it wouldn't be a very nice thing to do immediately, but I don't think they really understand it either. If you were to be a judge in a courtroom and you were to say someone had done something wrong, and you, would, would you ever say you're guilty of sin? I don't think the world really understands so much what sin is now. It's become more antiquated, I think, as a term. John Stott, for any of us who've maybe fluffy around the edges, don't quite know what sin is, knows it's something bad, but don't know quite what it is, John Stott helps us to get to the bottom of what sin is. In each case of sin, an objective criterion is implied. Either a standard we fail to reach or a line we deliberately cross. It is assumed throughout Scripture that this criterion, this ideal, has been established by God. It is, in fact, his moral law, which expresses his righteous, his righteous character. It is not the law of his own being only, however. It is also of ours, since he has made us in his image, and in doing so has written the requirements of the law in our hearts. We have rejected the position of dependence, which our createdness inevitably involves, and made a bid for independence. Sin is not a regrettable lapse of conventional standards. Its essence is hostility to God, issuing in active rebellion against him. So Jesus, both fully God and fully human, never sinned. 1 Peter 2 verse 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.14 says, For we do, ha- do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 1.18-19 Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 John 3.5 You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus was without sin, empirically, full stop. So in this passage, does it mean Jesus, in becoming sin, suddenly became actively rebellious against God? Guilty, hostile to God, and therefore to himself, and then maybe even no longer God? Maybe Paul offers the best explanation of this in Galatians, where he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In becoming sin, Jesus was not becoming an intrinsically sinful person. He wasn't starting to do bad things. He didn't suddenly turn his back on God and say, no, I'm going to do whatever I want. He wasn't suddenly a different person. He was without sin. He died without having sinned. But he took on the curse of the law. The law we could never live up to. The law we could never keep. Never fully fulfill. 
in our unbelievable ability to try to go at ourselves, we prove that we intrinsically can't and we need someone else to do it for us. I don't often quote Luther, but I'm going to quote Luther here. Luther explains, I think, a little bit better than I could, though I put it in slightly different, uh, more up-to-date language than I was able to find it. He says, Our most merciful Father, seeing that we were oppressed and overwhelmed with the curse of the law, and so to be held back by it, such that we could never be delivered from it by our own power, sent his only Son into the world, and laid upon him the sins of all people, saying, so this is the merciful father saying, be that Peter, the denier, Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer and cruel oppressor, David, that adulterer, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise, that thief which hanged upon the cross, and briefly, be that person which hath, sinned, hath committed the sins of all people. See, therefore, that you pay and satisfy for them. So in becoming sin, Jesus was becoming the very thing he wasn't and could never be, such that he could pay the price for us, taking the curse of the law upon himself rather than us, so that we could become the very thing we aren't and could never be. Jesus died without sin, but because of our sin. Because he could never sin, and we could never not sin. How horrendously amazing. Horrifically generous. What reckless love. This love, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, if we put the next slide up, so that in him, there's a reason he did it. There's a reason he became sin. A reason that the sinless man dying a sinner's death can be horrendous, horrific, reckless, while simultaneously truly being none of these things. Jesus died for a reason. Looking even into my own life, it's horrendous that someone else should have all of that guilt placed upon them. Pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, sloth. I can find examples of all of these across my life. Many way back and plenty more recent. How horrendous. How horrific. How reckless that all the times these things and more have reared their ugly heads in my life should be put upon that perfect person. But while it's horrendous, horrific, reckless, as we think about it, we see the purpose. We see its reason. We see that it's simultaneously wonderful, beautiful, loving, maybe even logical, for one who embodies and defines love, that is. So that in him. Jesus did it for a reason. That horrendously wonderful, horrifically beautiful, recklessly loving thing. So that in him, we need to be in him. What does it mean to be in 
him in Christ. We need it. But what does it mean to be in him? Galatians 3.26 says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. To be in Christ, in him, means to believe in him, to have faith in him, to trust in him and not ourselves, to realize we can't go this on our own. I can't do this on my own. I sin. I fall short. I'm not good enough. I thought I didn't need you, but now I realize I intrinsically need you. It means saying not in my own strength, but asking God to work in you, both to will and to work for his pleasure, as it says in Philippians. Now think about what it means to be in him. John Piper does, I think, a really great job. He highlights six, they're all scriptural, but he highlights six scriptures which help us to understand what it means to be in him. So firstly, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, He gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In Ephesians 1.4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He chose us. Romans 8.38-39, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 1.7 in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. 2 Corinthians 5.21, as we're looking at today, for our sake God made him to be, who no sin, be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. In Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. As Dave spoke about. That's being in him. So that in him, as Piper says, given grace, chosen, loved, redeemed, justified, adopted, we might become the righteousness of God. And here we come to the last section of today's reading in the uh, final slide. We might become the righteousness of of God. You may notice all these things being given grace, chosen, loved, redeemed, justified, and adopted. You may notice all these things we don't do. They're done to us, done for us. When we are in him, taking on the righteousness of God and all that comes with it, we are given grace. We are chosen. We are loved. We are redeemed. We are justified. We are adopted. This all comes from outside of us. It is imputed, is the theological term. It is uh, attributed to us through Christ's perfect sacrifice. We take on his righteousness and all that comes with it. Greg Morse explains uh, this by saying, at the heart of Christianity is a great exchange, a double exchange. Christ, our great groom, became our sin and bore the wrath he deserved. And in exchange, we get his perfect life and all that justly comes with it. But there is more. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit, as it says in Galatians 3. So in him we are righteous, 
in a great exchange, Jesus' righteousness becomes our own. But when we are redeemed, when we become righteousness in him, the righteousness of God in him, it doesn't stop there, we're offered the Spirit. J.C. Ryle, in his book Holiness, describes our righteousness as being without us, outside of us, coming from another. This is how we're justified. No matter what our sins, if we are in Christ, we're seen as righteous apart from ourselves. But Ryle also says, holiness, our holiness, is within us. This is how we journey towards becoming more like Christ. Sanctification, as opposed to justification, would be the theological word. This comes within us, and how wonderful it is then that we are offered the Holy Spirit to live within us. When we take on, when we become the righteousness of God, we are offered the Spirit to dwell in us as we dwell in him. So let's look at 1 John. In 1 John it says, This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Because Jesus, horrendously wonderful, horrifically beautiful, recklessly loving, logical sacrifice, we can be righteous in him. And because we can become the righteousness of God, we can all receive the Spirit. And because we have the Spirit, we can know that we live in him and that he lives in us. And that is how we become more holy how we become more like Christ, even as we know we are already righteous in him. So, when you forget your identity in Christ, how do you identify yourself and others? If someone asked you who you are, what your identity is, I wonder what you'd say. Whether we identify ourselves as a theologian, one of life's pedestrians, a surgeon, an optician, just another homo sapien, magician, comedian, dietitian, valedictorian, sectarian, librarian, vegetarian, seminarian, politician, electrician, octogenarian, nonagenarian, clinician, mathematician, or anything elseian. We still need redemption. <laughs> Bit cheesy, I know. <laughs> Wherever identity comes from ultimately means nothing if it isn't covered by redemption. And when we're covered by redemption, by that great exchange, our identity becomes Christ. We are Christian, Christian. For our sake, for us, Jesus became sin. For that short time, it might as well have been like he'd done what we'd done as he took on the curse of the law. 
upon himself. The curse of the disregard for our need for God. Jesus became this sin, despite knowing no sin himself, despite living that perfect life, so that in him, so that when we put our faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Becoming the righteousness of God, meaning as we dwell in him, through his spirit, he dwells in us and he transforms us into his likeness. And we continue our journey into holiness. But that journey into holiness, becoming more like Christ, that isn't what makes us Christian. It isn't what justifies us. But it comes because we've been justified. It comes because we are righteous in Christ. We are the righteousness of God through Christ. Some of us may be better at praying. Some of us may have more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But this is the fruit of the Spirit. It isn't what justifies us. It's the fruit of a life spent with the Spirit dwelling within us, knowing we are righteous in Christ. But our righteousness, what allows us to be seen as righteous, to have Christ as our identity, to be clothed with Christ, what it is that means we can dwell with him and he in us, what allows us, the Spirit, to be dwelling within us, to be welling up from inside us, streams of living water, that comes through Christ. No less, no more. And it can be so tempting to add to that message. But what we have, our righteousness, through which everything else comes, through which life in all its fullness comes, comes through Christ. So that's what we're going to do now. No less, no more. We're going to allow ourselves to be reminded, to be told, when we are in him, we become the righteousness of God. In him. Not in what we do, not in our job, not in how much we do at church, not in how much we come to church, although it's a good thing to come to church regularly. Now, how, not how well we know the Bible. Not through how much fruit we produce. It is in him that we have access to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In him that our sin and our shame is taken away as we clothe ourselves with Christ, both outside and in. So I'm going to ask everyone to stand now as you're able. Uh, whether you're here or online, if you're online, I encourage you to stand as well. And we're going to focus on Jesus. We're going to focus on him who had no sin, who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. The way we are Christians, the way we are worthy before God, the way we are good enough, the way we look at and think of others around us. It is in Christ. In Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. We have that guarantee. The Spirit reminds us of it, so we're going to ask the Spirit, the seal, the guarantee that we are righteous in Christ, no less, no more, in Christ, to remind us of our identity in him now. So if you want to receive this reminder, 
this encouragement, this reorientation to remember in Christ you become righteous. The righteousness of God. Why not hold out your hands as a sign you want to receive and remember? For those of us who struggle not to believe lies, we and others tell us, you are in Christ. Holy Spirit, cast out those lies and remind us of our righteousness in Christ. For those of us who struggle to accept that we are chosen, you are chosen, you are in Christ. Holy Spirit, help us to accept and realize we are chosen. Remind us, assure us of our righteousness in Christ. For those of us who think we're unlovable, who are full of shame, you are in Christ. Holy Spirit, point us to Jesus. Help us to clothe ourselves with Christ, but remind us we are righteous in Christ. For those of us who struggle to believe we could be forgiven. You are in Christ. Holy Spirit, remind us that we are forgiven. That there is no condemnation. That we are righteous in Christ. And no other way. For those of us who can't believe we're really God's child, his heir. You are in Christ. Holy Spirit, stir up in us the knowledge that we are adopted in Christ, that we are heirs in Christ, that God, our perfectly heavenly Father, our Abba Father, loves us and wants us as his children. Remind us that we are righteous in Christ. And for those of us who feel so insecure, never sure what's coming next in life, you are in Christ. Holy Spirit, remind us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You never change. That we are in Christ, we are righteous in Christ, and that never changes. You are in Christ. Abba Father, thank you. And for those of us who just don't know who we are, we haven't accepted Jesus, who don't know a strong and stable, secure identity, 
For those of us who struggle with lies, struggle to feel wanted, feel unlovable, feel unworthy, feel disconnected, feel isolated, condemned, insecure, you can have redemption in all these things. You can have the Holy Spirit within you, inspiring you, guiding you, encouraging you, comforting you, reminding you of your righteousness. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, and you can become the righteousness of God, full of truth, chosenness, security, love, connection, and family, forgiveness, full of righteousness. Whatever you have done, whatever you may do, if you commit your life to God, accept Christ's sacrifice for you. Through his righteousness, being in him, recognizing his righteousness, you have access to life in all its fullness. So if this is you, why not repeat the words of this prayer I'm going to read out now quietly in your hearts, which are taken from Scripture. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, the things I've done wrong. Wash away all my iniquity, all the ways I don't measure up. And cleanse me from my sin. Surely I have been a sinner from birth, but create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I am sorry, Lord. I accept Christ and the righteousness he offers me. Fill me with your spirit in his righteousness. Amen.